Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat high inflation by getting you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. Welcome to episode four of season five. I hope you are all doing very well in this week's pod. We're going to have a look at a few things. We're going to have a look at what's been upsetting our dreary stock markets. We're going to be hearing a little story about the latest meme stock, Bed Bath and Beyond. We'll see what's been happening in companies with our new quickfire look through the news before delving into our interview with Keshav Lohia. He's an oil expert and he's going to be talking about the market in all in its entirety, really. The recent price rises and falls. It's going to have a look at the energy transition and what effect the war has been having. And then we're going to also have a look at ways in which you can invest in this quite specific corner of the market and, of course, the risks that are involved in doing so. Really interesting stuff, I think. So please let me know what you think. Also, share the pod if you are enjoying it. And many thanks to our sponsors, Janice Henderson Investors, for their support, helping us educate and inform private investors. Okay, let's start with the markets. And as you can probably imagine, it's not really been great over the past fortnight. The big overarching worry is inflation and of course the action of central banks and and what that will do to re, to reduce the activity in economies and we we've heard from you know the big players the european central bank in europe of course the federal reserve in america the bank of england they're all signaling this this very strong intent to stamp out inflation which means of course households will continue to feel be stuck in this vice really of rising energy bills but also rising borrowing costs as well. In the US, we saw some data and actually we're seeing its economy is proving itself to be a bit more resilient than maybe some had expected in the face of higher inflation. You know, we're seeing employers continue to fight over workers and we're seeing consumers continuing to spend. But it's one of those sort of those kind of bits of news that the market hears and hears and even though it seems quite positive actually what what investors are seeing is wow it it means the fed realize they can afford to really turn up the heat on uh, inflation and 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 continuing their sort of their strong pathway of interest rate rises which of course has a big effect on on the economy and and the purpose of course is that is to just try and take some of this this strong demand out of the system in order to to deal with that side of the inflationary equation. In the UK, things are looking pretty grim. We've had a summer of strikes, and uh, that's likely to continue. And we're seeing this sort of economic outlook getting worse. Goldman was predicting inflation could could hit twenty two percent. The latest sort of groups to strike include journalists, the Royal Mail, and also a port, which is, is going to add some woes to our food shopping supplies uh, and also exports as well. High energy prices are proving, of course, a worry with a with a difficult winter slated. Uh, we, we heard from Ofgem, the energy regulator, that come October, you know, 
we're going to we're going to see the price cap rise and many households are going to face a nasty 80% increase in bills so it means the average house will now face an annual energy bill of 3549 pounds versus where it was last winter which was 1277 all in all it's going to squeeze the consumer it's going to squeeze businesses and you know Hargreaves was uh, was sort of mentioning that that pubs was one of those industries that that faces quite a lot of pressure it's got this triple whammy of painful energy bills staff shortages and a sharp fall in disposable incomes which is obviously going to affect the demand of its pubs it could mean reduced hours which will probably elevate brits into madness oil the price of oil is hovering around $100 a barrel it had been climbing higher recently as OPEC producers indicated that they may cut production and what we're seeing is the market sort of seeing that kind of supply squeeze um, but also seeing much weaker demand as as, as economies are, are affected by inflation. So we're going to discuss that a little bit more in our interview in a sec with Keshav. Finally in China, while it's it's quite harsh, COVID policies are still an enormous headache for many there and around the world because the outbreaks are being met uh, with pretty strict containment measures and shutdowns, which of course is not, not great for businesses and it's not great for supply chains. They have in recent weeks tried to revive their property market to try and you know boost the economy a little bit they've cut borrowing rates um, because we're seeing data that their economy is is really slowing um, with with those impacts all in all over the fortnight the FTSE 100 is down 4.78 percent to 7,182 points in the US the S&P 500 is down 7.67 percent to 3,955 points in Europe the stock 600 is down 7.46 percent to 408 points and over in Japan the Nikkei 225 is down 4.42 percent to 27,661. One story I saw in the FT which was sort of following on something that we discussed a fair bit on the pod particularly last year and that's meme stocks and this meme stock trading uh, kind of trend. So uh, this is where amateur investors, retail investors have been picking up stock ideas from social media. Uh, the big one was uh, Reddit's uh, Wall Street Bets subreddit message board. And then so getting these sort of ideas amongst these communities and then piling into the shares of these usually fairly thinly traded companies or, or you know, companies that, that didn't have a lot of shares in the market. So this this big sort of influx of investors was then causing these quite big price swings and, um, you know, potentially big gains if you'd sort of got in early and, and, and these trends had, had sort of caught on. The big one last year was GameStop. Um, a successful entrepreneur called Ryan Cohen had basically come in and, and, and um, bought into it and, and become chair of the board and said he could save it. But there'd also been a lot of hedge funds who said it couldn't be saved really and they'd shorted it. So the retail investors came in, sent the price soaring and caused quite a lot of big losses for these hedge funds who shorted it it's called a short squeeze and one in particular i think melvin capital its name was lost billions in in clothes so it was um quite an interesting uh sort of turn of events really where these amateur investors had taken a, a quite a lot of power away from these big hedge funds 
Um, so uh, more recently, we've seen um, uh, another story around Ryan Cohen, that, that chair of GameStop, um, who he'd had a lot of success on this online business called Chewy, which is part of the reason why he had a bit of a following. And this month, we saw that there was a filing uh, with the US regulators that he'd been buying call options. So these are basically contracts that allow you to buy a certain uh, amount of a stock within a certain time frame at a particular price. It's called its strike price or its uh, its exercise price. Um, and of course, if, if the market pricing goes above that, then you can just sort of net that profit. And he'd been buying these options in, in an American retailer called Bed, Bath and Beyond. So when this became public, keen amateurs had been following the man, bought into the stock and it rose almost immediately. Well, what did he then do? He then exercised his options and uh, immediately netted a $60 million gain, which then sparked a big fall in the stock. Um, and, and, and it set the message boards alight because many were wondering what was going on there, really. Cohen had been a big proponent of long-term investing. He'd made uh, it quite clear that he hated short selling, uh, this idea of betting on stocks going down. So, you know, they were wondering what he was doing, whether he was prepping for a merger with a company or, or what it was. I mean, nothing illegal has gone on, um, but no reason has really um, surfaced. And since we heard from Bed Bath & Beyond, they've updated the market on their strategies. And, you know, they're going to be, they, they were burning through too much cash and they were having strategic issues. So they're going to be laying off staff and, and there's going to be stock closures and the stock has fallen even further. So that was an interesting one. And, and, and the other sort of interesting thing to come out of that story was that um, he wasn't the only one to make a lot of money out, out of it. We also heard that a 20-year-old student named Jake Freeman had amassed quite a big state stake in in Bed Bath and Beyond prior to its rise and he'd managed to net 110 million dollar gain in the frenzy which was was quite remarkable uh, it was off the back of money that his friends and family had given him about 25 million um had been running the money for years how is it that a 20 year old could be running money for years well at 17 he'd managed to get an internship at a at a hedge fund and learned quite a lot of the tricks of the trade and and become pretty successful at it so interesting one there okay final section uh which we've sort of changed a little bit it's just a quick fire kind of section on what's been going on in companies and let's start with huge russian energy giant luke oil its boss ravel maganov one of the few Russian critics of the Ukraine war has died following a fall from a hospital window, which Russian state media said was an apparent suicide. Now, I'll leave you to decide whether you believe that explanation, but it follows a litany of supposed unfortunate deaths of war critics in Russia. Tesla has had a little stock split. It's offering three, it offered three shares for every one that its investors own. And the idea behind these splits is that it reduces the price to supposedly more affordable levels so that more than retail investors can, can get involved. You know, so if you had one share that was $120, suddenly you'd have three that were $40. And supposedly, you know, that might be a level that, that, that doesn't deter so many people. The impact, you know, whether or not it does, I think it is still questionable. We saw it also recently from Amazon, who did, I think, a 20 to 1 stock split. In funds, I thought it was interesting that the fund manager of a large, a global large company fund called LF Blue Whale, Stephen Yu, 
came out and said that most retail investors should simply focus on passive funds or if they fancy an active fund, a fund with a fund manager at the helm selecting stocks, they should go for ones that are high conviction. So when we say high conviction, that means that the portfolio has relatively fewer stocks in it than compared to most. So maybe 25 or 30 stocks rather than 60 stocks or even 100 or, or more. And, um, you know, and he says that, you know, the reason for that, of course, is is that, you know, fund managers can't really hide behind that stock list. They've got to have a lot of conviction that each and every stock is, um, you know, is 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 the right investment. Because, um, uh, of course, you know, if something goes wrong in a, in a high conviction fund with one of the stocks, it has a bigger impact on performance. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. Blue Whale, of course, is a high conviction portfolio, uh, and it was it was seeded by Hargreaves Lansdowne, billionaire owner Peter Hargreaves, with twenty five million, and and it has grown. Uh, I think it was at one point two billion at, at one point before it fell back a little bit because it has quite a lot in technology. Talking of technology, we saw the shares in Chipmakers Video and AMD have fallen as the U.S. government announces restrictions of sales of its AI chips to China and Russia, addressing what they call the risks are that they'll end up in military equipment. Of course, the Chinese are not too pleased about this, but both companies had already halted sales to Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. Okay, let's get on to our interview with Keshav. We've been talking a little bit about energy markets and oil in the podcast recently. So I thought what I'd do is come back to it, but with a razor focused specialist, a man who was an oil analyst for a hedge fund and has recently launched a startup that focuses on providing oil data to the market. So from Oilytics, I'd like to welcome Keshav Lahir. Kesh, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning and sort of explain oil markets in a little bit of detail. What do we mean by this? How big is the market? Yeah, so oil markets is, you know, put out, it's huge, it's massive. It's like, historically, you go back 100 years, it's powered the modern economy. And and what do you mean by the oil markets? You know, it's used the general term, but these are various stages uh, in the oil process. So there you have uh, companies that produce the oil, uh, so that's exploration. Then there are companies that, uh, you know, refine the oil into gasoline, diesel. And then there's a whole big business of moving oil around, uh, which is through pipelines or ships. And that's collectively called the oil market. Uh, and then in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, it's become the more and more financially driven. So that you have, you hear about the physical oil market, and then there's the whole market in the financial players uh, who trade oil, buy and sell. And that is collectively the oil market. And roughly we're talking about 100 million barrels a day, which is consumed and produced roughly. Uh, and this has steadily grown every year. So you know pretty well, I suppose, all the different factors that feature, well, feed into this sort of price of oil. And that, that's something we hear about a lot in the news. We sort of hear per barrel, you know, it's either going above 100 or below 100 or or doing something around that. So, so what is it that drives the price of oil? I mean, I understand it's probably quite complex, but I suppose in its simplest sort of terms. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, as you said, right, oil is very 
complex. There's been millions of people who've tried to predict the the price, you know, and uh, um, and no one knows. In fact, like the, even the Saudi um, oil minister in the heyday, he said, uh, you know, only God knows the price of oil. So there is <laughs> there is no like it is so complex the amount of variables that go in. Uh, and you could have all the resources in the world. You could be, you know, the egg zones or, but you still wouldn't know what the price of oil is. But to just simplify it, the price of oil is effectively driven by supply and demand from, you know, if you go back to economics 101. I mean, I imagine, well, the people that you would have thought best place to understand this would have been those big kind of oil super majors, like the BPs of this world. Because I imagine it's quite a complex engineering kind of problem uh, do they have a particular insight or is it just even too complex for a big company such as those yeah so oil the, the beauty of the oil markets is that it's very fragmented by fragmented i mean there is no one player that can control the price uh you know in other markets uh you have you know, a lot more concentration, you know, I don't want to go like this, like this is a cartel in diamond markets or whatever, but in oil, mm. you know, literally the whole globe is involved. Um, so even someone like Saudi Arabia, the largest producer in the world, uh, they only contr control roughly 10% of the oil supply. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of like amazing history books written about oil companies. You know, in fact, a lot of these oil companies uh, were once formed by uh, Rockefeller. He was the richest man at his time, uh, and he and he created the modern day Exxon, Chevron, um, but now uh, these these integrated oil companies, the BPs, the Shells, the Exxon's, they're not as relatively powerful as they used to be back in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So even though BP and Shell are huge, but in the grand scheme of the oil market, they are they're still a minor player. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we hear a lot about, just briefly, we hear a lot about OPEC and OPEC countries, which include Saudi Arabia. Yeah. This is, I suppose, a cartel. What do, do they have much control foresight over the price? Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, OPEC is a cartel. You know, if if any if any group of companies tried to do what OPEC did, it would be illegal. But but as a, as a country, you know, they are sovereign nations, they can do whatever they want, and hence OPEC can exist uh, legally. Um, so OPEC collectively make up 30 to 35% of, of oil supply. So, you know, that's, that's large countries like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Nigeria, Angola. And then now, you know, with the last five years, you have OPEC plus. OPEC plus means you have the old OPEC plus Russia. So, and that's roughly 40 to 45% of the market. Um, but even then, you know, uh, they cannot control the price completely. You know, we had COVID two years ago, which just crashed demand. Um, uh, and, you know, the thing is the oil is very uh, geopolitical and um, it's very, uh, you know, everyone knows that oil is not here forever. So, there will be technological pushes coming in slowly or evolving, which OPEC are very worried about. Um, but yeah, to short answer, you know, even a country like OPEC or OPEC plus, they can only control that much, but end of the day, it's the financial markets, which 
which you know rule the rule the price and no one has any control over that okay interesting so let's get on to sort of events more recently i suppose um what we've seen is that the price of oil has sort of gone up quite a lot and and many of us have, have felt it as part of the sort of cost of living crisis so we've we felt it at the pumps um what what's initially driven that very sharp rise this year yeah so uh, like a two-part answer uh, so firstly the, the cost of living it's it wasn't just linked to oil it's been like you know a triple whammy from like uh, from natural gas from power um they've all spiked up you know and uh, oil on its own um oil was you know on its flow uh, in 2020 covid you know the world stopped flying the world stopped moving so oil prices uh hit rock bottom you know um, in fact uh, one price benchmark hit negative prices you know uh, um but then what happened after uh, post covid you know uh, the demand came sharply back, you know, the pent up demand for, for flying, for, for uh, factories opening, for moving around, for long distance driving. And that fueled the demand side. Uh, and on the supply side, this previous price crash shut down a lot of the existing producers because they lost a lot of money and they literally just shut shop, you know? Uh, so that was like, you know, supply got suppressed and demand came roaring back. And that was, that's the current scenario we are in right now. Uh, and then, you know, you couple that with with other markets, you know, which COVID had a big impact on. And then all of a sudden, the for the average consumer, you know, you're seeing the cost of living just surging through various different factors. So it's this big, big lumbering ship. And suddenly you turned off the taps a little bit and then demand slammed back in very, very sharply, which, of course, is is almost unheard of. It doesn't tend to happen in economies. It's this very unusual thing with COVID. Yeah. And that's why we suddenly saw this big spike, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so then and then recently we've seen it fall again, you know, below $100 a barrel. And we were sort of discussing that on the pod not too long ago. Why is that? And are we out of the woods? The way financial markets in oil, you know, works, like financial markets, uh, firstly, th this this price softening has caught a lot of people by surprise. So the when I said, you know, the, in oil markets, you have the physical market and the financial market. The physical market is people who actually need the oil the refineries of the world, uh, the ships of the world, uh, the trucks of the world versus the financial markets of the world, you know, uh, which is being traded, for, whether it's for, you know, the speculation or, or, or hedging needs. So there's a two different kinds of markets, but the, the financial markets, which sets the price is also very forward looking. So yes, the, the markets, are, the prices are saying that, yes, the current market is very, very tight, you know, with the, with the sanctions on Russia and the, the post-COVID demand. But what the financial markets are saying that we are in for a very sharp recession because these prices cannot continue. And not just like oil is very, oil is not expensive uh, compared to historic prices. You know, we've had a spike up to 147 in 2000. Uh, seven eight, which led to the uh, financial market crash. But what the current market is saying is that these uh, elevated prices in power and natural gas, in oil, uh, interest rates rising, is not sustainable for the for the current economy. So the financial markets are forward looking and telling that oil markets will eventually crater. And there is some kind of like a pendulum 
which is going on between, you know, whenever prices go up too sharply, they come back down because as a group of, you know, market which believes that these prices will come off in the future. Um, and like, you know, the financial markets are like a, a group psychology of what the wider market is thinking, you know, and that's what sets the price. Right. Okay. So you get to a certain point with oil with because it's such an important part of the economy that the market can see that it, it knows it will slow the economy down and therefore demand will drop off. Is, is that sort of what's happening? Yeah, effectively, effectively, you know, one way of thinking is that, okay, the oil markets are looking at electricity markets, they're looking at uh, natural gas markets. They are saying that this factory cannot sustain running at these elevated prices. So they will eventually shut down, which will have a knock-on effect on, on, uh, on oil. And we haven't even talked about China. So China, um, you know, between the, in the 2000s, early 2000s, China was the biggest bullish driver for oil markets. So they were, China was the main reason why oil demand was growing uh, very strongly. Similarly now with zero, China has, you know, initiated zero COVID policy and they're not backing down, even though the rest of the world is now evolving from COVID, China still shuts down uh, various cities if COVID flares up. So oil is very vulnerable to what China is doing. So, um, you know, if, if the market thinks China is about to, you know, economy is going to weaken or if the zero COVID is going to, you know, stop and start their economy, oil gets dragged down with it. And actually, I've got an interesting, I've got a question actually, because, I mean, obviously we saw the sanctions on, you know, we're seeing the sanctions on Russia and that's playing a big part in, in the spikes, as you mentioned. And now a lot of Europeans, a lot of Western nations are saying, no, we don't really want to get energy from Russia anymore. Do you think they'll start trading? Because China's been quite quite silent on on the sort of war. Do you think they'll start trading quite heavily with Russia, and, and that's where the oil is going to sort of end up? Yeah. So I mean, it's already happening. It's already uh, so you know, uh, India, UAE, China, uh, uh, Saudi. A lot of these countries have remained neutral uh, on this on this issue. So um, historically, a lot of oil and gas went to Europe. And oil can be moved by pipeline, by ships. So oil is a very fungible product, which makes the market very global, as opposed to natural gas, which moves bulk of it by pipeline. Uh, so oil can be rerouted very, I wouldn't say easily, uh, but, so, but what has happened is that Russia, as much as it can, is moving its oil to Asia, India and China. And it is being done at a discount. So India and China are getting discounted crude from Russia, uh, which Europe doesn't want. But Russia cannot move all its oil from Europe to Asia. And uh, the deadline is in December where Russia, where Europe switches off all its Russian oil. So we will see these geopolitical, you know, we, we're going to see these uh, traditional oil routes, which has been there for the last 50 years, about to change overnight. Uh, and with the oil routes changing, the geopolitics changes. So yeah, from the supply side, oil is very, very bullish. You know, and like people are talking about prices going double. But what is the worry is that demand. So you have very bullish supply picture, but a bearish, when I be bearish, like a weak demand picture. And that's what right now is the tug of war. 
Okay, interesting. Because I suppose part of um, America's success in recent years is the fact that it's had very cheap energy. So would you say that sort of China, India, those countries which consume an awful lot of energy are looking at this and thinking strategically, you know, this this could be a bit of an opportunity? Yeah, so like, you know, like US, for example, geographically is a very blessed country. From a commodity point of view, they're very independent, whether it's whether it's food or natural gas or, or oil. But Asia, Japan, Korea, India, China, they are huge importers of energy. So, you know, just like how in Europe, you know, we benefited from the industrial revolution, you know, there's a big chunk of the population in Asia, which needs cheap energy to to effectively grow for the middle for the middle class to grow. Uh, so yeah, this is, you know, geopolitically, some might say this is like a great gift for like countries like India and China, because they have stayed neutral for a reason, because they cannot afford high energy prices. Okay, let's get on to the energy transition. I mean, prior to the war, I suppose, we um, were having, you know, it was a strong impetus towards uh, greener kind of future. We saw a lot of the big oil companies uh, talking about going to, to net zero by 2050 and transitioning away from sort of dirtier hydrocarbons. And I'm just wondering, you know, we've discussed a lot of the geopolitics and uh, around um, uh, the war and, and sort of the changes that we're now probably going to see. What's happening to this energy transition, as they kind of call it? You know, what, what has it done, the war, for this? You know, even prior to the war, you know, the ESG uh, was, a, was a big movement. There's a lot of pressure for public companies to, you know, to cut their emissions, uh, to, to promise net zero commitments. Um, but now what the war has done is that it's, it's re-emphasized the, the notion of security, the security of supply. Uh, if you can't rely on your traditional partners or if trade routes change overnight, all of a sudden, every country starts to think about where we are getting supply from and how can we secure it. Uh, and that means, you know, when you have uh, a choice of between keeping the lights on versus um, reducing emissions, you know, most countries will try to keep the lights on on whatever it takes. And we are just about to see what's about, you know, when we approach winter and the power grid power grids gets uh, challenged in all across Europe, you know, no politician wants to be in power when lights go off. So what we're seeing is a scramble to, to, to get energy supplies. Uh, what, what has happened to this whole energy transition movement, uh, you know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, was that all these policies were done to restrict supply. So, you know, politicians went to these large public companies and put pressure saying you have to cut you know, and this pressure was done politically and also done through big shareholders. Um, and that pressure was basically restrict supply. You know, you go to BP and Shell, public companies and say, hey, you have to cut your emissions. But what the harder thing to do is that how do you cut demand? So the whole ESG or energy transition movement wasn't able to talk about the demand. That's the elephant in the room. You know, we can, like oil is a very complex product. You know, we can buy it electric, you know, EVs, electric vehicles, um, and reduce some of the oil demand that way if we make our own personal choices. However, oil is very versatile. You know, oil is needed in aeroplanes, it's ships, and there are some of that process, some of those 
there is no alternative fuels out there as it stands, you know, unless we get a big technological jump. But for large, for large uh, vehicles, whether it's trucks or ships or planes, there is nothing replacing oil right now. Uh, and then, you know, there's a whole other world, you know, Asia, which is just population is growing, economy is growing, and they will need more oil. So even despite these whole ESG pledges, we have seen oil demand continue to grow. Uh, COVID was the only exception. But so what that has happened is that when you restrict supply, and the problem with oil supply is that companies need to make decisions 10, 15 years ahead, because these oil uh, investments take a long time. Uh, and then a lot of companies decided to stop drilling because you know if you start to believe that there's no more oil in after 2035 or whatever year some in investment starts to stop and that is like the like a recipe for like you know higher prices for a long time uh so this energy transition even before the war was very lopsided towards the supply equation uh, and not enough was being done to cut our demand um so even before the with the Russia-Ukraine war, we were heading towards higher prices for long periods of time. Interesting. And then the war came along, and and how did that change that story? Yeah. So basically, the war has accelerated. You know what was supposed to happen in the next three four years? It literally happened in the next three four months. You know, um, we've you know Western Europe, for example, has always had very resilient energy grids. You know, they had a mixture of nuclear, uh, natural gas, renewables, and there was a whole big whole push to increase renewables on your power grid. Uh, but, you know, some countries shut down perfectly healthier nuclear plants. Um, and, you know, now all of a sudden, what the, the countries are realizing that we should have had a, a big, a wide option of where our energy is coming from, and then you could decide what you want to switch on and off. But if you permanently shut down something, then you become dependent on, you know, like how Germany became dependent on, on Russia. Um, yeah, so I think this, you know, this, this, uh, this ESG movement was, um, it was only targeting a few publicly listed companies uh, where ESG has failed is trying to change, um, you know, demand or even private companies. Sometimes the downside of ESG was like, if you force BP and Shell to sell their assets because it was uh, you know, producing uh, emissions, it was being bought by private companies who were not, um, who didn't have to you know, uh, report to public investors. So it was, that's why this whole now ESG movement, now people are thinking about it, it was, it was, um, you know, there's a term called greenwashing, you know, where, yeah. where, you know, some companies do it to look good publicly, but in reality, nothing really happens, you know, because it's just getting, you know, there's always a buyer and a seller and, and these, it, they change hands and nothing changes in the grand scheme of, you know, things, but not, but not to sound too downbeat. There are certain uh, technological improvements happening. You know, you look at your average car, for example, it, 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 it uses a lot less oil because, uh, you know, the best way of uh, using less oil is basically getting more efficient, you know, whether it's whether our houses are more insulated or our cars are more modern. So uh, 
these things don't make headlines, but they happen slowly. As retail investors, we know that uh, you know that oil is probably going to be around for quite a long while. Um, if you want to gain exposure to oil, uh, what are the options then? Yes, the, the good thing about oil markets uh, or, or oil equities are they've been here for a very long time. These are very uh, you know, big uh, market has a lot of depth, you know. Uh, so there are from a, a lot of countries have oil companies in them. Uh, it also depends on your risk appetite. You know, uh, oil can be seen as very risky. Um, so, you know, uh, you can have a small company uh, which only has a handful of assets, and on the safer end, you have someone like BP or Shell who have a wide, you know, a wide portfolio of assets. Um, and they can protect from any, you know, unexpected um, circumstances. Uh, so it depends on the individual's uh, risk appetite. So, you know, you have a small oil companies, uh, which are literally, you know, like lottery tickets. They're waiting to, to strike gold on, 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 on some frontier uh, drilling area. And then on the, on the safe side, you have BP and Shell who've been there for over 100, over 100 plus years, and they operate globally. And, you know, somehow, despite any, uh, despite market conditions, they, they make money, you know, uh, and then if you want to reduce your individual company risk, and I'll talk to you about what, you know, even how some of the safe players can be risky, um, you know, you can have a basket of ETFs, don't want to go into the detail, but there's lots of ETFs, which does a pool of you know, Norwegian, Norway's biggest company, they do, they add Exxon, they add BP and Shell, and you can build a basket, already made ETFs, which you can buy. So you've got, on the very risky end, you've got small, what they call exploration and production kind of companies that might be just trying to find one single well, and if they hit it, you know, woohoo, it's kind of like the lottery, yeah. and, uh, but most of the time they don't. So that's very risky. Like, like, like just to give an example, right? These are small companies which are operating in offshore Namibia, or they're operating in Kurdistan. So you have the technological risk, you have the political risk. But, mm. you know, if, if something, if things go your way, you know, they can go 10, 20, 50x your investment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. And then you've got the much larger oil companies so it's still a single stock risk you still got the risks that are associated with a very cyclical volatile market but they've got lots of projects going on including fields that are already running so that's the kind of on the safer end but still of of an individual stock right and and to give you and to give you a really good example you know someone like bp it's it's in every British pension, they hold some. They hold some percentage of BP. If you have any kind of pension, because BP is such an important component of FTSE 100, uh, and historically BP has made, you know, they've given very good shareholder returns. But uh, with the with the Gulf oil spill, the Macondo oil spill, mm. you know, it was a black swan risk, and that oil spill almost, you know, brought BP down to its knees. Hundred years plus of history, they almost went bankrupt. You know, and that was something no one could have uh, foreseen. Mm, yeah, that's that's a great point, actually. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, I mean, almost all of us own it probably in our pensions if we've got one through work and it, and it pays a very strong dividend. And you, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's a classic example of where you think something is as safe as houses. And then, uh, as you say, that black swan, that really unusual idiosyncratic event comes along 
Um, and, th- and this is the problem with single stocks, I suppose. Um, yeah. And then ETF. So these are exchange traded funds. These are passive products and they con- that will contain then a number of companies. But you don't have a fund manager selecting those. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, some of them like something like iShares, which is offered by, I think, uh, BlackRock or whatever. I think I personally, you know, it's very, they, they just take a, they take a big basket of um, European oil companies like Norway or French Total and uh, BP and Shell. And then they put their own weighting, you know, they've got a methodology behind it and you don't have uh, any say over it, but, you know, you let the experts do the allocation, mm-hmm. uh, but your overall exposure is still very oil intensive course yeah so that's always the risk i think with any of these o- overarchingly that it's it's the energy markets and energy markets are you know somewhat volatile and quite dependent on uh, economic cycles as i think kesh has described quite well um kesh thank you very much that was a that was an absolutely fantastic interview great to speak to you uh, i'd like to thank kesh Avlahoya. thank you marcus thanks for having me well, a very big thank you once again to Keshav at Oilytics. Uh, fascinating market, really. I think it's it's interesting how totally global it is, how difficult it is to try and predict where that price is going to go. And the fact that not just all those economic forces that are feeding into it, you've got these big geopolitical moves that are also playing a big part too. Uh, of course, if you're looking to invest, don't forget, as we mentioned, those quite... Um, prominent risks that are present when you invest in specific areas of the market, particularly if they're quite volatile and linked to the economic cycles. Uh, if you've got any questions for me, don't forget I'm available. Marcus at steps to investing.com. There's also our website with plenty of platform reviews and our blog, so please sign up there. Uh, next time around, we're going to be having a look at investment trusts. But until then, I hope you all keep safe and well. Goodbye. Thank you.